You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. I was going to say, those of you just coming in, there's plenty of seats, so you're very welcome indeed. Everybody's extremely welcome, distinguished guests, friends, colleagues, those joining us online. Um, it's great that you're all here for our Behind the Headlines. It's the second uh, discussion of the academic year. Um, and we're really thrilled to have with us this evening such a distinguished panel of speakers bringing together, I think, some very diverse viewpoints uh, from across the humanities and beyond. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is our Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And for those of you who don't even know the building, it's the very sort of modern building. Actually, we should have a photograph up here when we're not. Uh, as you go down the ramp on the left-hand side, that's the Trinity Longroom Hub. Um, uh, anyway, uh, behind the headlines is very much part of our signature uh, a series of events. Um, we're very grateful to the John Pollard Foundation that supports it. And through this uh, forum, we seek to uh, focus on topics that are being debated in the media or are highly uh, prevalent in our times. And this one just could not be more uh, significant in terms of obviously the budget has really uh, put the focus back on uh, housing again. What we like to do, though, is to apply the um, long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities and to provide a space for uh, respectful public discourse um, that actually embraces nuance and combats simplification. Um, and as I say, we feel this is more important that we do this uh, than probably at any other time um, uh, uh, with the rise of fake news and all of that it, it, it's, things have become so partisan so divided that we need forums like this where we can really debate as I say in a very respectful manner some of these very sensitive issues tonight's panel discussion is also part of the launch of the Identities in Transformation lecture series called Trinity and the Changing City and you'll see these hot pink brochures. I should have one up here. Actually, Daniel, you can maybe wave one around for me. Uh, they're scattered all over the place. Uh, it's a multidisciplinary series um, where we look at the lived experience of Dublin's citizens through the prism of the arts and humanities and social sciences at, at Trinity. Um, and uh, it's a really fabulous programme, so hopefully you'll be able to join us for uh, some of those lectures. So, to tonight, uh, Ireland has just emerged from the economic uh, crash and a period of intense austerity, um, and the issues surrounding Dublin's housing have escalated. And in tonight's discussion, we aim to address and to interrogate some of these concerns by taking a broad uh, temporal view on the city's uh, housing. We're very honoured to have a great panel of speakers from the world of heritage and conservation uh, and our own academic uh, experts. For many people uh, living and working in Dublin City, the housing crisis is at the forefront uh, of their minds, of our minds. How did the city come to be in this situation? 
uh, and uh, are we able to see an improvement in the hopefully not too distant future? It's from this challenging position that we commence tonight's discussion. Our first speaker will be Lisa Marie Griffith, who's a historian from Trinity and author of numerous books on Dublin. And she's going to take us back to the 18th century and examine the roots of housing problems and how urban authorities and governments failed to tackle these dysfunctions uh, as they emerged. I think Lisa will be reminding us is that actually nothing is ever new. You look far enough back in history, you'll always uh, uh, find earlier occurrences. Our second speaker uh, this evening is Charles Duggan, who is the Heritage Officer for Dublin City and Project Manager of 14 Henrietta Street, the new museum, which opened last uh, month uh, after a 10-year-long restoration and conservation and research and curatorial uh, 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 and interpretive in, uh, sort of initiative. I mean, it's been a phenomenal project, uh, and I think the checkered history of this former tenement building uh, will be the focus of his talk. I haven't had a chance to visit uh, 14 Henrietta Street. It's very much on my radar. Has anybody in the audience had a chance actually to visit it yet? A few people. Yeah, I, I, I'm really, really, really excited to, to go and obviously looking forward to hearing from Charles this evening. Um, our third panellist is Paula uh, 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 Mayock, who is professor here in Trinity in the School of Social Work and Social Policy. Um, she's the founder of Women's Homelessness in Europe Network, and tonight she'll look at some common misconceptions and stereotypes about the homeless and how these exacerbate both the causes and consequences of homelessness. And then last but not least, um, we're joined by Ronan Lyons from Trinity's Department of Economics. Um, Ronan is a recognised expert on the Irish housing market, and he's the author of the quarterly uh, daft.ie reports so you've probably heard Ronan uh, on the radio you've seen him on on television he also has a weekly column in the uh, Sunday Independent uh, tonight he'll be looking at how uh, the city's housing has developed and what policy steps are required to ensure the present crisis does not persist into the future um, I, I'm also going to give a bit of a plug for Ronan has an online course uh, entitled economics of the property market so if any of you are interested in signing up for that course I'm not even sure what the cost is but that's irrelevant it'll be about the quality of, of, of the course um, uh, I think you can still do so look at the Department of Economics's web page for details on that online course we're also hoping that you will join the conversation uh, this evening uh, we will have plenty of time at the end for Q&A because each of our speakers has only got nine minutes. So they're all going to be very disciplined uh, with their time to allow uh, you to ask questions. But we would just remind you that your questions uh, need to be direct and, and short to allow as many people as possible uh, to ask uh, uh, questions. We're also podcasting the discussion tonight and we're also uh, live streaming it on our Facebook page. Um, you can join us on Twitter. So while I'd like you to switch the sound off on your mobile phones, uh, please join us on Twitter using uh, the hashtag uh, HubMatters. So without further ado, could I uh, ask you to um, join me in welcoming our first speaker this evening, uh, Lisa uh, Griffith. Lisa. 
Jane, and thanks to Longroom Hub for inviting me to take part in the panel. Um, the population of Dublin has been steadily increasing since the 18th century, and as long as it's been increasing, Dublin has struggled to adequately house and take care of its poorest inhabitants. With the 18th century came an economic expansion and a long period of peace. And so out of this, um, Dublin's property developers first came to the fore. Um, the first square to be developed in Dublin was actually developed by Dublin City Council, or Dublin Corporation as it was known then, when they laid out Stephen's Green. So at the end of the 17th century, hoping to make some money from rent, they laid out uh, the square, renting out plots of land all around the square. And the idea was they would provide a long lease. Um, wealthy people would come and take up these long leases of perhaps 100 years, and they would build their own houses to very strict specifications, usually using red brick, um, three to four storeys high, uh, particular widths, a certain number of windows. And this idea became so popular, it was quickly taken up by private property developers. And one of the property developers, um, or I suppose one of the names that came out of the 18th century, um, were the Gardner family. And there are three generational dynasty, really, of property developers, and they would have developed streets that are very well known in the city today, like Henrietta Street, which was really the premier address in the city, um, Sackville Street, of course O'Connell Street, Rutland Square, which is Parnell Square today, um, and of course Gardner Street. And this um, idea of building these Georgian red brick iconic buildings um, meant that the city's wealthy inha wealthiest inhabitants um, took their place on the finest streets. But Dublin is during this period known as the gorgeous mask, and behind these really stunning buildings um, are where the city's poorest inhabitants live. Um, and it's one of the unique qualities of 18th century Dublin that the poorest inhabitants actually live very close to the wealthiest. And there's some very um, built up popular built up districts um, in the city around this period like the Liberties in and around St. Patrick's Cathedral, St. Catherine's Parish. And it's these districts that we would usually associate with um, linen weaving and um, artisan crafts in the 18th century. And yet, these, this population are most susceptible to um, economic changes that occur in the 18th century quite quickly. So if there's a decline in demand for linen, for instance, very quickly this can put hundreds or thousands of people living in the Liberties out of work. The houses that they lived in could be 200 years old, they were overcrowded, and there was a huge problem with sanitation in these districts. The next big trend which occurred in housing in Dublin um, in the 19th century was suburbanisation. And this is where private property developers took the idea that the gardeners and Dublin Corporation before them had, and they brought it to the outskirts of the city. In this period, Dublin um, City is um, identified as the area between the canals. So between the can Royal Canal, between the Grand Canal, this is Dublin City. And everything outside um, becomes this suburban area. 
So people like the Earl of Pembroke develop uh, the Pembroke Township and these are private housing estates like Balls Bridge, like Rathgar, like Drumcondra and they are really well facilitated. They have lots of nice amenities like clean running water, access to tram lines and very quickly the middle and the upper class move to the suburbs. And the working class of Dublin and its poorest inhabitants are left in the city centre and they are left in the tenements that develop. Now tenements aren't really a unique um, idea to Dublin, you're going to find tenements all over the world, we associate them in Dublin as being something bad, but they're not. So if we went to Scotland in this, inst or in this period, what we're going to find are purpose-built tenements. Yes, they are small, but they do have better facilities. In Dublin, what takes its place are the three and four storey buildings that the middle and the upper classes are leaving behind. These buildings have been built to last for maybe 100 years and now they're stripped out, their fabric is damaged, they are divided, they are subdivided. And as the city's population continues to increase, more and more people are crammed into these buildings. In the middle of the 19th century, between 45 and 50 percent of Dublin City's inhabitants, sorry, families, live in these one-room tenements. So there could be 100 people or more living in these buildings that had originally been designed for wealthy families and their servants. Um, and this leads to a huge crisis. By the beginning of the 20th century, one of the events that really crystallised um, how bad the living conditions are for these Dubliners was in 1913 when two tenement buildings on Church Street collapsed. Seven people were killed in the collapse of these two buildings and this awful um, incident brought a huge amount of attention to the housing crisis. An investigation was opened up which looked at how horrendous the living conditions are for most people who are living in Dublin city centre. The Great War, however, meant that housing was put on the back burner and it wasn't until the new free state was founded um, that housing became an issue that people were prepared to tackle again. Between 1923 and 1931, Dublin Corporation built over 5,000 houses in Dublin city centre. These are largely built on the north side of the city. However, these buildings are targeted at Dublin artisans. So these are people with skills. These are essentially middle-class people. And they're targeted on a rent-to-buy scheme. So the idea is it's facilitating them to buy a home. So they really have to have um, money behind them and jobs behind them to be able to do so. And the poorest are left behind, the people who are really struggling um, to actually find adequate housing. The 1931 Housing Act um, encourages corporations to invest. It doubles the grants for social housing. Um, and Dublin Corporation responds very well to this. Between 1932 and 1939, over 7,000 housing units are brought online. 1,700 of these are apartments for the city centre. Um, and the rest of these are um, suburban units, um, mainly in the north side, and it does develop that, but there are also significant units on the south side as well. And one of the big developments that comes out of this, uh, for instance, is Crumlin. 
But there are problems with the amenities that are being provided in these new suburbs. So one of the horrendous things that happened in Crumlin is that the Garda station is set up long before the first secondary school is established in the locality. House building really slows down in the 1940s and 1950s, and once again in the 1960s, it takes a terrible incident to occur before housing comes back on the radar, and that's in 1963 when three inner city tenements collapse on three different streets within weeks of each other. Two of these collapses led to fatalities, uh, two young children died and uh, an older couple died. And again, this prompts more social housing. And one of the most famous um, social housing initiatives which comes out of this period are the Ballymun Flats, which were built from the mid-1960s onwards. Taking a historical view, there can be a really surprising continuity in the attitudes towards homelessness and poverty in Dublin. The problem in Dublin housing is that population steadily increases from 1700. And despite this, we have not steadily built houses to keep pace with this. And it's not something that's gone away, and it is something that we should be able to forecast. We've only built housing in fits and bursts, and when we do, we focus on housing for the middle and the upper classes. For the majority of the last 300 years, we've neglected the people who are most in need of housing and assistance. The narrative of historic neglect has become so ingrained in the institutions who are responsible for housing, it's made it easier for them to ignore these people and their problems right into the present day. Thank you. Good evening. <clears throat> I'm going to take a bit of a more of a myopic view, uh, and I'm looking at um, 14 Henrietta Street. And the focus of my talk is the 19th century landlords responsible for the converting of Henrietta Street's houses to tenements, what their impact on the street was, and ultimately what motivated them. But I would also want to highlight some of the other complex factors that impacted negatively on the people living in Dublin's tenements. First, I will begin, though, with a short synopsis of 14 Henrietta Street, uh, um, which opened last month as a museum, exploring the Georgian origins and tenement legacies of its own history. Um, so Henrietta Street was developed by Luke Gardner in a piecemeal fashion over a 30-year period from the late 1720s. Uh, his last building work in the street um, were, was the construction of 13 to 15 Henrietta Street, which commenced around 1748. In 1751, General Richard, Lord Viscount Molesworth of Swords, moved to number 14 with his second wife, Mary Jenny Usher. Molesworth was MP for Swords, a Privy Councillor, Lieutenant General and Commander-in-Chief of the Forces in Ireland, before becoming Field Marshal. He was a senior and celebrated resident of Henrietta Street. After the death of Molesworth in 1758, the house is leased to a succession of high-ranking individuals, including the Right Honourable John Bowles, Lord Chancellor of Ireland, uh, Sir Henry Lucius O'Brien of Dromolan Castle, Sir John Holton, who was Bishop of Clare, and later by Charles Dillon Lee, 12th Viscount Dillon, the last peer incidentally to live in number 14. From 1850 to 1860, the house is the headquarters of the Encumbered Estates Court, which is a NAMA-like entity established in the 19th century post-famine Ireland, whereby the state took ownership of properties and sold them on, accompanied by a parliamentary title. From 1862 to 1876, the house was occupied by the somewhat raucous families of the Dublin militia, stationed in the nearby Linen Hall barracks. And then, in 1877, the house was sold by the War Department and converted to tenements. So who were the protagonists um, in the streets' transformation to tenements in the late 19th century? 
The first was Thomas Vance, who purchased number 14 in 1877 from the War Department, and then Joseph Mead, who between 1887 and 1892 converted numbers 3 to 10 and 11 to 13 um, Henrietta Street into towns. So before discussing Vance and Mead's impact on the street, it is worth looking a little deeper at both men. And in doing so, um, the question arises, um, do they fit the bill as the typical unscrupulous tenement landlord profiteering from the letting out of substandard accommodation to the working poor? I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions. In his obituary, uh, which appeared in the Belfast Newsletter on the 11th of October, 18, um, 1889, Thomas Vance was described as a consistent conservative in his politics. He was a prolific businessman, an early commissioner of the Black, Black, sorry, Black Rock Township, and held directorships with a number of companies, including the Gresham Hotel Company, the Henry Street Warehouse Company, the Dublin United Tramways Company, and upon his death, he left an estate worth over £32,000 in real estate and shares. As noted by Tim Murta, um, whose research uh, for the 14 Henrietta Street Museum project informs this presentation, Vance seemed uh, like the typical um, uh, stereotype of a callous upper-class Dubliner, a product and beneficiary of Victorian capitalism who made his money and let out property in the city centre, but lived in the affluent suburbs, free from contributing to the city's taxes. On the other hand, in the aftermath of a cholera epidemic in the city in the early 1850s, he built suitable homes for the poor, in inverted commas, um, or more specifically, a series of model lodging houses in Dublin. He opened Vance's buildings on Bishop Street. This was a large-scale complex of lodging houses. Charles Dawson MP recalled in 1913 how, quote, Mr. Vance showed me over his reconstructed dwellings in Bishop Street. I saw every appliance for sanitation and comfort, but he showed me his rent book also, which recorded a handsome yearly profit, unquote. Vance clearly had a dual motivation to provide affordable um, but suitable housing for the working classes um, uh, th that was above the norm in standards of accommodation while also having the less um, uh, satisfactory motivation of making money. In 1854, Vance established another complex off Chapel Lane, um, oh, uh, sorry, off Bridge Street on Chapel Lane, beside where he had a business premises of Vance and Beers, a wholesale woolen and linen merchants. There he built another housing complex, this time comprising multiple lodging houses, a bath and wash house, and even a schoolhouse for which tenants paid between one and three shillings per week. At number 14, he converted all the principal rooms from basement to attic into 19 tenement flats. The varying room sizes of the original house allowed for configurations of up to three or four subdivisions for the larger front and back rooms. Improvements noted in, the, um, in an 1878 ad, Irish Times ad included um, newly wallpapered walls and a stove for cooking in each fireplace, while for communal use he introduced vartry mains water as well as toilets and gas lighting off the back stairs. While we can only speculate as to Vance's true motivations, his record suggests he went well beyond what one typically expects of a tenement landlord. Was Vance pioneering a type of private sector social infrastructure? Um, I'm not going to answer that. Uh, Vance's estate is listed in, in the 1914 housing report among societies and companies providing housing, which also include the Dublin Arsenal's Dwelling Company and Dublin Corporation. The report notes that Vance's estate included 180 dwellings housing 780 people. Joseph Mead, really the villain of the piece, uh, and the street's other and more prominent tenement landlord was a well-known Dubliner, uh, uh, a Dublin building contractor and politician owning um, one of the largest building companies in the city with an average of 900 employees. He speculated in house property, particularly in the prestigious Pembroke estate, um, as Lisa would have alluded to, um, a growing suburb in the southeast of the city. So while he was a large suburban, um, so he, while he was building large suburban houses for Dublin's bourgeoisie, he was also earning substantial rents on his properties in Henrietta Street, occupied primarily by the struggling working classes. 
He played an active role, though, in a number of civic charities and institutions and publicly advocated for improved housing conditions for the poor. As alderman um, for Dublin City, he presided over weekly meetings of the Public Housing Committee at City Hall, while, uh, which discussed the many causes of um, death and disease in Dublin. When the Association for the Housing of the Very Poor was founded by Charles Cameron in 1898, Joseph Mead was appointed as a director and chairman. Carmen was concerned about the city's casual workers, many of whom were forced to live in stables, cellars, and dark underground spaces. Over a number of years, this association renovated existing houses and built new homes in the liberties of the city. As previously noted, Mead bought, up, uh, uh, bought a total of 10 um, properties on Henrietta Street, uh, where he gained reputation as a, a vilified slum landlord. However, according to the evidence from the 1914 housing inquiry, he carried out a large amount of remodeling work on the street and in the, 18, uh, in the 1880s, and uh, that the, the houses had, um, had been converted into a flat system based on the Scotch model and provided with sanitary services to a considerable extent. One inspector noted that Mead had practically reconstructed these houses inside and formed them into flats and provided them um, generally with sanitation or sanitary accommodation. The evidence today suggests that he installed a two-storey um, toilet block to the rear of number three Henrietta Street and a five-storey toilet block at the rear of number seven, which provided a toilet and wash sink on each floor. So somewhat unfairly, I think, Mead could, um, couldn't shake off his slum landlord image. He was probably uh, the subject of this lampoon sketch, which reads, he is the eminent philanthropist who represents Kill, uh, Kill em All Ward. He wearily, um, wearily remarks uh, that his eyesight is growing worse each year, then retires to make room for the doctor, the coroner and undertaker, and public health goes to sleep again, and the slum owner takes the chair at a large and influential meeting for the better housing of the poor, and makes his audience weep with his heart-rendering descriptions of life in the tenements. It has been pointed out that um, it was only after the death of Vance in 1889 and Mead in 1900 that the street's decline accelerated and its population increased, suggesting the next generation um, did not have that same hands-on approach to the pre as the previous generation for providing and managing working-class housing. After Vance's death, um, the Vance estate, included, including number 14 Henrietta Street, was put in a trust married, managed by his son and sons-in-laws as trustees, of course, not his daughters. Um, it is noteworthy that they were all residents in England and their wives and children um, were there with them. Um, after Mead's death in, death in 1900, his estate would appear to go fallow, probably resulting from a, a protracted legal dispute between Mead's son and his second wife. The estate was finally sold in 1810 to the, Royal, to the Hibernian Bank. The following year, the census records 934 people living on Henrietta Street, and including 17 families amounting to 100 people living in number 14. So while rents in number 14 in 1912 were as low as one shilling and sixpence for a small single room flat, a basement flat, they also topped four shillings and um, sixpence for a larger room. And given the size of accommodation provided in the house, these rents would appear to, to be fairly average for the time, and they don't come near what was sought in an advert which appeared um, in the previous decade uh, for the renting of a three-room flat in number 14 for four shillings and elevenpence, um, which, uh, and the note also said to apply to the caretaker. And so I wonder, is this um, evidence of a, a house farmer at work in number 14? I'll describe what a house farmer is in a moment. Vance and Mead were the legal owners and landlords of these buildings. However, in Dublin generally, it is not just an issue of ownership. There are multiple layers of agents, house jobbers, middlemen, um, house farmers, and they are uh, known, sorry, uh, sorry, as they were all known, and, and these all, all pushed up the rents. House jobbers would take over a long-term lease on property only to subdivide them into tenements. The house farmers would often, uh, were, who were often just fellow tenants, 
uh, with the means to take out a short-term lease on another flat uh, or a floor of a house and rack rent them at exorbitant rates. Research shows that in many cases the legal owner, the landlord, um, who was responsible for the maintenance of the building was often only receiving a third, a third of the rent that was levied. Housing inquiries, okay, time. Um, okay, that, maybe I'll leave it there and I can pick up the rest <laughs> in the Q&A. Right, so thank you. Thank you Good evening. Um, I'm very happy to be here this evening to uh, make a contribution, I hope, to this uh, important discussion. So um, the focus has very much been in, on housing, but we can't have a discussion today without, uh, about housing, of course, without referring to homelessness. So for the next eight or nine minutes or so, I'm going to speak specifically about women's homelessness. I want to challenge a number of common um, misconceptions, stereotypes and myths. And I want to comment briefly on current policy and service responses uh, to women who experience homelessness. Now, everybody here will be familiar with the scale of our homelessness problem. Currently, close on 10,000 people are homeless in Ireland, with around 1,700 families currently living in homeless accommodation. And the number of dependents in these family totals approximately 3,700 children. Now, a lesser mentioned I suppose feature of our homeless figures relates to the composition of these homeless families. Figures published by the Department of Housing over the past months, and indeed unfortunately for a number of years now, indicate that between 60 and 70% of the total number of homeless families in the Dublin region are single parent households. The vast majority of these households are headed by a female so that female-headed lone parent families are therefore massively overrepresented amongst families experiencing homelessness. So what has been coined a crisis of family homelessness is largely a crisis of women's homelessness. If we look at the total homeless population then, including um, singles, single people who are homeless as well as families, in Ireland 44% of all individuals currently homeless are women, and this figure is well above the European norm, which stands at 20 or 30% in most countries. So essentially what we have seen since 2013, 2014, or thereabouts, is a rapid feminization of homelessness in Ireland. Now particularly in more recent years, um, or in the, particularly I'd say the last year, year and a half particularly, the a common mantra that has accompanied the homeless and housing crisis is that homeless can, homelessness can happen to anyone. With many media reports suggesting that any of us in this room are one or two or three paychecks away from homelessness. Um, yes, in theory perhaps, anyone can potentially become homeless. But in reality, not just anybody becomes homeless. And we can demonstrate this easily by referring to the profile of the homeless population. For example, available statistics from the Central Statistics Office demonstrate an unemployment rate of almost 70% among the homeless compared to 12.9% of the general population. If we look then to educational levels of attainment, 38% of those living in homeless accommodation do not have any educational qualifications beyond lower secondary level. Just 1% have a third level degree, compared to 42% in the general population, and more than 50% in the 19 to 20, 39 year age group. 
Homeless is not, homelessness is not randomly dis distributed in the population, and it does not happen to just anybody. Homelessness primarily affects low-income and poor individuals and families, many of those families headed by a female single parent. These individuals and families may simultaneously face other challenge challenges, but let's be clear, poverty is the single most powerful predictor of homelessness. We do need to draw a distinction between individuals who are impacted by the housing crisis, who are many indeed, and those who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. The mantra homelessness can happen to anybody is misleading and distracts from the cultural causes, the structural causes of homelessness. I want to turn now to women's experiences of services. Research in Ireland and at a European level has highlighted women's distrust in homeless service um, systems and indeed in the apparatus of the state to respond to their homelessness. However, it is commonly suggested that homelessness is a choice and that homeless people are gaming or scamming the system. In contrast, however, homeless women tend, if anything, to present as homeless at a, at the very, as a very last resort. Our research and research elsewhere throughout Europe has demonstrated <coughs> that women avoid homelessness services and opt instead to live in situations of, of hidden homelessness, to double up with families, friends, friends couch surf, um, often for prolonged periods. Single women avoid ho homeless services because they fear for their safety in these male-dominated environments. There is no evidence that homeless women or families are gaming the system, and we would do well to focus our attention and address what we do know and what is evidence-based. For example, if we take the case of women living with the threat or reality of domestic violence, we do have clear evidence here. Evidence that indicates that women and their children remain in violent homes for longer than they may otherwise do because they are unable to access refuge accommodation. And incidentally, the Department of Housing does not count women living in domestic violence refuges as homeless. So turning finally to current service provision and policy. While shelters, hostels, and other systems of emergency, short-term and medium-term uh, accommodation remain a dominant response to homelessness in Ireland. Put differently, our go-to response is to warehouse um, rather than to house, and this has been the case for decades. Furthermore, reliance on these kinds of responses has increased since 2013 and the publication of the Homeless Policy Statement. And this was despite the commitment made by the then Minister to a housing-led approach to homelessness. We are currently opening more and more emergency hostels and in March 2017 reverted to the provision of transitional housing previously abolished, this time in the form of homeless hubs to house homeless families, that is primarily women and their children. Transitional congregate settings of this kind have long since been demonstrated to undermine people's social networks and the functioning capacity of families, thus exacerbating rather than ameliorating the challenges that homeless women and their children confront. Research also points strongly to dimensions of transitional living that bear a greater resemblance to a form of incarcer incarceration than to having a home. Hubs are yet another crisis response. They serve people badly, 
and they will be very difficult to dismantle in due course. Historically, homeless women were depicted as eccentric, bag ladies, and as transgressors of acceptable and accepted norms of femininity. Viewed as largely unworthy, these women were managed in the main by institutions run by various religious or evangelical communities and government-funded initiatives, all primarily designed to manage women's perceived deviancy. Women were classified as something other than homeless, rendered invisible and simultaneously othered. Today, the language to used to describe women who experience homelessness may be more nuanced, but some clear continuities are evident within both public and policy discourses. In particular, contemporary policy discourses on homelessness and housing have largely ignored gender and the fact that women are disproportionately impacted by our dysfunctional housing system. Policy has also failed to address and respond to the complexity and diversity of women's homelessness. Our continued reliance on what are essentially institutional responses, whether hostels, hotels or hubs, to women's homelessness represents a failure on our part as a society and an indifference towards some of the most vulnerable in our society. Thank you. Firstly, I'd like to thank you all for uh, coming this evening, and I'd like to thank the team at the Long Room Hub um, for, for inviting me to talk. Uh, I see a couple of my students um, here, uh, and I think they're just fascinated by the idea that I could say something in less than nine minutes. Um, so we'll see, how, we'll see how I get on. Um, the, uh, the, I suppose what I wanted to um, convey in the short time I have that everyone else was able to stick to so well um, is an idea of how somebody like me, and I'm, a, I'm an economist by training, how we view a healthy housing system. What are the ingredients of a healthy housing system? And Paula used that word, housing system. We talk about the housing market so much, but actually um, the, the, the market bit is not the complete uh, housing system. There's a non-market bit as well. Um, and uh, the, the, the market and non-market elements of the housing system are complements, not substitutes. They, they go together rather than, than they should be fighting with each other. And I think it's really interesting to listen through the, the, the different talks so far and to go through all the different elements of time and Dublin's history um, and, and see those themes of who provides what and how, um, because that's how we're going to address the, the crisis we have at the moment. One of my areas of research is looking at um, the evolution of the housing market, um, market price uh, for either housing for sale or housing for rent in Dublin over the long run. And uh, the long run currently only stretches back to about 1900 or so. I mean, maybe in due course I'll get back into the, um, the 18th century. The registry of deeds goes from 1707, so I have a lot of work to do. Um, but when you look at the evolution of the housing markets, you can see over the last 100 years, when you strip out general inflation, because that kind of muddies the waters a little bit, um, but you can see four main housing cycles. Um, the, the prices are falling from 1900 through to about 1917, 1918. These dates are obviously not random. Um, and then they rise strongly up to 1932. 
and they almost fully recover back to 1900 values. Um, and then they fall to 1941 and then they rise quickly to 1948 before falling again all the way through the, the 1950s crisis um, to the turning point in roughly 1957-58. And that's around about the time Ireland Inc. got its, its economic model um, sorted. It was going to be a, a platform for, um, uh, in particular, non-European business to access, in particular, European markets. That being a small closed economy was worse than being a small open economy. And in the, um, in, in the period from roughly 1958 up to 1980, there was a big increase in property prices, and some of that was driven by tax policy. There was a big increase in the late 1970s, and that's when they got rid of the annual property tax rates. Um, property prices increased by about a third in 18 months because they got rid of an, a holding cost of, of property. Of course, by the 80s, the debt problems had arisen and, and property prices fell quite a bit. But by 1988-89 in the city, they had turned a corner and they rose for almost 20 years up to 2007. And, and throughout those various episodes, there's different factors at work. Um, clearly, Demand matters, right? If you can find something, we talked about the linen weavers, um, you know, and, and Dublin and Ireland was like a linen economy in the 18th century. Um, but when that changes, you see the effects in, in, in how people live. And when Ireland didn't have something to make, to sell to other countries, um, there was very weak demand to live in Ireland and therefore weak demand for housing. Um, we now have a business model, and I don't think we're gonna follow the British route of, of leaving the single market anytime soon. We're not gonna give that up, being a base pr for primarily now American business to access the single market. And as long as we do that, we have very strong demand for housing. But it's not just underlying what I would call real demand, people with jobs and higher incomes, more jobs, more incomes converted to housing. It's also about how you treat the housing market as a government. And I mentioned the example of um, uh, of, of property tax, the ground rents as well. Ground rents were a real cost that people paid up until inflation basically made them disappear. Um, and that also pushed up the value of property. We've largely switched those elements off with the central bank rules. Um, the central bank rules take away a lot of the, if you think of housing prices as a kite that get blown around in the winds of supply and demand, um, now you've got a kite that's actually anchored. The central bank rules keep it firmly anchored to the real economy. It still blows around up and down, um, but at least it's got some sort of anchor to the real economy. But that still leaves, uh, I'm an economist, I would say this, right? It still leaves supply and demand. And if you don't like those words, think of it as capacity to meet our housing need. Um, and here it comes back to not being just about the market and thinking about how policy has to change and adapt. Um, in some ways, we could think of our housing crisis as being uh, five or six or seven years old. Right? So rents have been rising in Dublin since 2010, 2011, and that was the earliest thing to turn. So, you know, seven years old. But really, the housing crisis, that, uh, the bubble and crash episode, which still has a legacy impact today, that is a distraction from when the true problems started to emerge. There is no reason, we know from other countries, there's no reason that housing should ever be expensive as long as you've got the right policy environment. Even in cities with very high demand, Tokyo is not, not perfect, but in Tokyo, housing is a lot less expensive than in what you typically think of as Anglo-Saxon cities or European cities, um, where rules that are well-meaning in nature have very adverse consequences in terms of housing those on lower incomes. 
So as we look to reform the, the housing system, I think of three areas that we need to tackle. Um, the first is in how we use land. Think about the, um, was, it, was it Thomas Mead or, or his, his competitor who was a, a shareholder in the Dublin United Tramways Company? Like when the Dublin United Tramways Company set up its depots, it did so because they were on the edge of the city and land was cheap where it set up those depots. Those depots are now in Clontarf, Donnybrook, Fibsborough. Um, they're still bus depots. Right? Land use that we have, now land use policy is last use, not best use. We need to switch it over to best use. The single easiest way of doing that is to have some cost for misusing land. If you've got something that was an industrial estate in the 60s but really is now a retail park um, and should be used at much higher densities, where's the cost on an annual basis? And a land value tax has that effect. Um, it, in, it, in, it internalizes the external costs of underutilizing land. The, the second issue, if you think of the use of land as really affecting how expensive land is if you're looking to build, uh, and what you do on that land when you do go to build, there's the cost of what you build when you're, you build. So the, the second element is ensuring that we have a construction sector that's fit for purpose. Um, and I think one of the most startling things that I've learned over the last two or three years about analyzing the housing market is just how mismatched our housing is compared to our, our people. The majority of households in this country now, and it's true and even more so in Dublin, comprise one or two persons, but the majority, the vast, vast majority of our housing is built for four or five persons. And, and that's not to say that somebody in a one or two person household can't live in a dwelling made for four or five, if they can afford it. But if you can't afford it, then you've got a, a big problem. Um, and I'll come back to that in, 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 at the end, and I'm, I'm conscious that I've, um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to time. The, the first issue is land use. The second issue is an efficient construction sector. How can we make sure that we're, we're building at a reasonable cost compared to our own incomes? Think of the, the analogy of the kite again, this time for costs, not for mortgages. And the last issue is how social housing is, is funded. And here, I think the budget, this being budget week, it's really relevant. That healthcare has increased its budget by four and a half billion per year between 2015 and 2018. If even a fraction of that were to go to cost rental, which is where social housing is tied not to the market, but to providing new homes, think of how many people would have a home if we'd started in 2015 and had that kind of budget. So the last thing I, I want to say is it comes back to the the nature of the housing we need. When we think about building homes, we, we often allied the word home into house. We need to build houses. I'm going to say, actually, we don't need a single extra house in this country. What we need is every other form of housing. We need everything from student accommodation through to assisted living complexes. Everything that's not a family home, we have a significant shortage of. And to put some numbers on it to close, the last thing I'll say, roughly speaking, Dublin needs 100,000 apartments of all kinds every decade for the next five decades. That's 200 a week, every week, till we're all dead. <laughs> Sorry, some of the students will probably still around in the uh, 2070s and 2080s, but I'm probably going to be gone. Um, that's the, the, the scale of the challenge. It's not a five or six year problem. This is a decadal problem. Um, and we know the solutions, but it's really about getting over the inertia and, and taking the, the expensive and sometimes painful actions that we need to solve it. So I look forward to the discussion, and thanks again for your attention. Thanks for the invitation.
thanks so much for four absolutely fabulous uh, uh, talks. And, and thank you very much for giving to time. Much appreciated. Mm -hmm.